Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Oh, good morning. You actually do meet in a clam. Like, that's... I'm not from around here, so, like, I read on the website that you meet in the clam. And can you guess, if you don't live around here, what you think the clam is? You think that's a seafood restaurant, right? Wouldn't you think that? It's like, oh, that's cool. They meet in a seafood restaurant. And it's like... And then maybe afterwards there's a buffet or something. I don't know. I was like... Okay, great, we're going to the clam. And then when you pull up, it's a freaking clam. <laughs> Who thought of that? Like, that's, that's gorgeous. And, I mean, there was only one reference to meeting in the clam, but, like, all those songs should be about in the clam of the Lord and, like, here in the clam, it's a clam of miracles. And I reckon, like, come on, work that thing. Like, the, the clam is, like, a, it's a selling point. The second selling point is this pulpit. It's extraordinary and beautifully crafted. And then the third selling point, seriously, I've been to a lot of churches, but this one has the highest per capita rate of gorgeous looking children I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. What are you, is there something in the water here or is it like, are you all related to each other? Is it, <laughs> is it genetics? Like how, how? Are they all so beautiful? I haven't found an ugly one yet. Like, <laughs> Gorgeous, gorgeous church and a gorgeous clam, so it's really good to be here. I'm going to be speaking from uh, the book of Colossians, like from a passage in chapter 1 to begin with, and then mainly I'm going to spend some time in chapter 3. So I did see there are Bibles in the back, but if you've got a device or a screen or whatever, uh, you might want to kind of find it through the little wheel and, and ping on it, so you've got Colossians, at least Colossians chapter 3 ready, so we'll look at that uh, this morning. Just by way of kind of getting you into the zone and thinking about what's going to be explored in this, in this particular chapter, I want to r- remind you or raise with you the distinction between two phrases that Christians use quite a lot, and they're both good phrases, they're both in the Bible, perfectly cool to use either of them. I think we use one of them quite a lot. And the other one, not so much, although you might hear, I don't know what goes on in the clan, but from my experience, we tend to focus a bit more on the first phrase I'm going to mention, but not so much on the second one. And the passage in Colossians chapter 3 is all about this second phrase. So the two phrases are, us in Christ, sorry, Christ in us and us in Christ. Now, I think we use the first phrase, us, Christ in us, quite often. We'll talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit or inviting Jesus into our lives or we often talk about the the intimacy and the sense of kind of personal connection, that we are a, a kind of a place of shelter for Jesus. Maybe, I don't know, when you became a Christian, you invited Jesus into your heart or into your life. Do you use that kind of language? We talk about Christ being in us a lot. Perfectly cool. The Bible uses that phrase a lot as well. And as I said, it kind of indicates intimacy, kind of personal connection. Jesus actually dwells in us. 
the king of the universe finds us, despite our sin and our brokenness, a pleasant place of shelter. Christ is in us. But the second phrase is the one we don't so often use, and it is also a biblical phrase, and it says something similar about our intimacy with Jesus, but it also explores another dimension to following Christ, and that's the idea of us being in Christ. In fact, Colossians is pretty much all about that, and it uses that kind of language, or language that kind of alludes to that all the way through the book. Not just Christ is in us, but that we are called by Paul in this letter to be in Christ. That's a kind of esoteric, sort of mysterious kind of phrase when you think about it. Like we can imagine, I invite something into me, that makes sense, but what does it mean for me to be in Christ? Well, before we get to what he says about us being in Christ, let's hear the way he talks about Christ. Because my guess is if someone said to you, oh, you guys go to the clam every Sunday, like what's the, uh, you see I'm working this clam thing, don't you? <laughs> you guys go to church every Sunday, like what, what, who is Jesus for you? What's Jesus all about? My guess is you're probably going to talk about Jesus the, the Galilean, Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the teacher, the healer, Jesus the prophet. You're probably going to talk about the man Jesus, aren't you? You're going to talk about his miracles, his teaching, his prophecy. You'll talk, hopefully, about his death and his resurrection. You'll talk about Jesus the person. But have a listen to the way Paul talks about Christ when he's talking to the Colossians. Uh, I, I don't doubt for a minute that when he talks to the Colossians in person, he tells the stories about Jesus. But in his letter, here's how he introduces Jesus to them. This is the one he's going to then call them to be in. Now, take a listen to this. This is Colossians chapter 1, just verses 15 and 16. The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you talk about Jesus like that? Like, it's cosmic, don't you reckon? Like, when Paul is talking to the Colossians about Jesus, and who he's going to say to the Colossians, you should be in him, here's how he describes him. He is the cosmic force that created the universe. He made it, it was made for him, so he owns it, and in him, get this, all things hold together. I don't you find that just mind-blowing? It's not just like, oh, Jesus was the Galilean and now he's gone up to heaven and he sits on a cloud somewhere. He is the power, he's the force, he's the energy that not only created the world, not only owns the world, but actually sustains the world. In him, all things hold together. Could you even conceive of this? Could you even picture this? I can't. It's easier for me to picture a guy with a beard and a robe and sandals, right? But the cosmic Christ, the resurrected one who holds the whole universe together, this is an extraordinary vision of Jesus. Do a Google Images search on that one and you'll find some pretty crazy images, actually. The whole way of trying to imagine what the Christ is like, as Paul describes him here, is really, really mind-blowing. And what he's saying is this, think of the greatest king, think of the greatest ruler, 
Think of like our local rulers, you know, in, in Asia Minor, because he's writing to the Colossians. Think of Caesar in Rome. Like just think of the most extraordinary king you can ever imagine. And our king actually rules over all of that. Like it's phenomenal. This force, this power has been revealed to us as Christ the man. Now, in this respect, he's speaking language that ancient peoples could totally understand. Because back in the ancient world, there was a huge discussion going on just before Paul writes this around what is it that makes the universe work? Like, we know all sorts of stuff about science and the universe these days, don't we? But you imagine ancient peoples trying to figure this out. Like, how does the sun know? to come up over that part of the east at this time of the year, but that part of the east at another time of the year? Like, how does it know its trajectory through the skies at different times of the year? How, how does the sun know that? Or more specifically, how do trees know that at winter, the beginning of winter, all their leaves, they should die, all their leaves should fall off? Like, how does a tree know that? And they all know it all at the same time. They all lose their leaves all at the same time. Like, we've chopped down trees. There's no brain. There's no mechanism. There's nothing in them. We turn them into, to, into pews and chairs and tables. Like they don't sprout leaves once we do that to them. How, when they're in the ground, do they know? Like, how do they think and how do they tell each other? Come on, boys, let's do it now. Leaves. Like, how does a tree know? How do all our lamb, how do all our sheep and goats and cattle know now is the time that they all should give birth to offspring? Like, how does it work? Like, what tells them? What speaks to them? How do they know all this stuff? And there started to be a series of Greek philosophers, not Christians, Greek philosophers started to say, there's got to be a voice. There's got to be something that directs the whole universe, that makes flowers sprout in spring, that makes our sheep give birth to lambs, that makes the sun come up and the stars change at different times of the year. There must be some kind of power or force or energy that speaks that into the rhythm that it has. Does this make sense? And they had no way of knowing how to describe that, so they just used a classic Greek word for it. They just said it's like a word that gets spoken. And so they called it word, and the Greek word for word is logos. So there's, there's a logos that runs through everything and keeps this order at work. And then shortly after that, a bunch, of Greek, a bunch of Jewish philosophers said, you guys are right onto it. It's true. What you say is right. There is a word. There is a voice. There is something that energizes and maintains the rhythm of the universe. But Jewish philosophers said, we actually think it's not an inanimate force, it's a sentient force. It's Yahweh, it's God. God is the word, God is the logos that sustains and maintains the rhythm of the universe. So can you imagine what Christians did with these ideas? Christians said, both of you are right. There is a force at work. There is a logos. There is a word that keeps this rhythm of this whole universe at work. And that is God. It is Yahweh. And guess what? That incredible cosmic force that through everything in the universe is God and has been revealed to us as a person. 
Do any of you know how John's Gospel starts? In the beginning was the Logos, Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is he saying? John, not Paul, but John is saying, you Greek philosophers are right. The Word was here at the very beginning. And you, Greek, you Jewish philosophers are right. That word is Yahweh, is God. And in verse 14 of John chapter 1, he then says, and the word became flesh. The logos, that cosmic force that holds all things together in rhythm, was revealed to us as the person of Jesus. You all with me so far? Well, that's pretty heavy philosophy, right? But this is how the early Christians talked about Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't use logos language specifically, but everything that you find here in the passage I just read in Colossians chapter 1, didn't it sound like logos thinking? That through him all things were created, for him all things were created, in him all things hold together. He's essentially saying the same thing in slightly different language. This is Christ. This is not just the Christ you invite into you. This is the Christ that calls you to be in him. Now, what on earth does that look like? It's extraordinary when he gets to chapter 3 and starts to explain what it means for us to be in Christ if this Christ is this energizing, life-giving, sustaining, logic, rhythmic force that unites all things in the universe. Let's get to chapter 3, which is the chapter I want us to look at, because this is where he talks about what life in Christ is all about. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What he's saying to the Colossians is this. If you truly believe that Jesus is not just the man from Galilee, he's not just the man who died for your sins or defeated death in the resurrection, but if you also believe this one is the Logos, the Word, the one that sustains the whole universe, he says to you to do two things, set your mind and set your heart on the things of Jesus. In other words, elevate your very being into the realm in which Christ operates. You died to all the things from the world. That's the regular kind of life. But here's what I want you Colossians to do. And he'd probably say it to you too as well here at, at Long Jetty. Here's what I want you to do. Your heart, your affections, your desires, your hopes, set them on the things of Jesus. Your mind, your aspirations, your understandings, set it on the things of Jesus. In other words, be in Christ. Take Christ on. A little later in the passage, which I'll read to you, he talks about it a little bit like clothing. He talks about putting on Christ. And you can imagine in the ancient world where they wear kind of cloaks and robes, you can kind of picture that, can't you? Like, put on Jesus, cover yourself, shroud yourself in Jesus. But I want to use a kind of 
well, a concept that Paul could never even possibly have imagined as an illustration of this. I want you to imagine this a little bit like virtual reality goggles. Have you ever done virtual reality and put the goggles on and kind of gone into a... One guy has. Anyone else? It's disconcerting, right, at first? Like, you know, you put the goggles on and then all of a sudden all the rules of life as you've lived them are totally different. Like the sky could be orange and the ground could be purple and things fly, you fly. Like, all the rules of normal life are completely subverted and totally different. And at first, at least the times I've done it, I feel like I've got to like, take them off again a little bit and kind of get oriented again to what's up and what's down and where the ground is before I put them back on again. And now I'm in a totally different realm. Now, there's a real sense, I think, in what Paul is saying. Virtual reality guy's got to go and take his gorgeous baby away. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Why did I interrupt myself? <laughs> you didn't interrupt me. I interrupted myself. Um, uh, I think what Paul is saying here is this. You live in the ordinary world, right? And the ordinary world is where women get treated like garbage. And the ordinary world is where the strong always win. And the ordinary world is where sex and money and power just rule. And where the weak and the poor and those without influence or the right friends or the right powers are completely crushed in the gears of life. That's just life. That's normal. You don't bother complaining about it. That's just the way it is. But here, when you put on Jesus, what? Everything is completely subverted. This whole world, the world that Christ intended it to be, now becomes your vision of life. And then he begins by saying, so the, this world is not like these things. I'm just continuing to read in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. What is in the, in the ordinary world in which you operate? Like, put that to death. Let that go. And then he describes it. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of these things. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from the lips... Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. Now, some people always think, oh, Paul, you're always giving us lists of all the bad things that we shouldn't be doing. But I don't think that's what he's doing here. I think what he's saying is this. Take your goggles off, look around. What do you see? Lies, immorality, greed, slander. It's just normal life. In the Roman Empire, that was normal. Put all of that aside. Put on Christ. And you see the world completely differently. A whole new ethic, a whole new morality, a whole new vision of human flourishing. And then in verse 11, which is one of my favourite sections of this, he says, not only do you put aside the old morality, but you'll see people differently. Have a look at what he says in verse 11, here, with the reality goggles on, the VR goggles of Jesus, when you're in Christ, here in this world, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Slythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, in the old world, how do you interact with people? 
based on your assumptions about their identity, right? She's a poor slave woman. There's three identity markers. I know how to treat her. He's a rich Jewish man, three identity markers. I know how to deal with him. I am a poor barbarian slave. You know how to treat me. And that's the world. That's how we live. We are identified by certain identity markers and we are treated that way and we treat each other that way. But when you put on Christ, there's neither slave nor free, neither neither Jew nor Gentile, neither rich nor poor. We don't identify he's a barbarian, she's a Scythian, she's a slave, he's a this, he's a that. We're free. Don't we need to hear this today more than ever? I mean, we don't only really have, like, identity markers. We now play identity politics. So I have to let you know who I am by what causes I support and what political parties I vote for and blah, blah, blah. Are you sick to death of it? I'm sick to death of it. Put on Christ, and what do I see? My sister, my brother, my brother, my sister, my friend, and all these gorgeous children, my grandchildren. Like whole new way of seeing each other emerges. So you don't judge me because of how old I am. You don't judge me because of my gender. You don't make assumptions of me about the way I speak. You don't judge me because of how I look. And I don't do the same thing to you either. Now, how do we treat each other? My sister. Ah, I'm home, my brother. Do you follow? When you put on Christ, you stop looking at the world as it is And now the sky is purple and the ground is orange and there's a whole new ethic. Interpersonal relationships emerge from this. And then he says, look, if it's not even clearer to you at this point, let me tell you what it looks like with those goggles on, he says. And then he explains the good stuff. In verse uh, 12 he says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is what it's like in the virtual reality world of Jesus. And now we see each other, and we are seen differently in Christ. You all with me? So how do you do it? Well, like I said to you before, first time I ever did VR, I put it on. It was so disorienting, I had to take it off. I had to go back to the world as it was before I could kind of do it a few times and sort of get into the experience of virtual reality. And I think that's what it's like following Jesus. It's not like that. It's like we have to kind of put the goggles on and off a few times. In fact, not using VR language at all, but I can't put it any better than C.S. Lewis does when he describes it this way. Let me, it's a few sentences, but let me read this to you because I think it's beautiful. This is how C.S. Lewis describes the experience of putting on Christ or being in Christ. He says this, Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this life, we shall also be children of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. 
He came to this world and became human in order to spread to other humans the kind of life he has by what I call a good infection. We get infected by Christ. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Put out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and carry it out. As one might read Plato or what Mark said and try to carry it out. No, no, they mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you are saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It's not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. It's a living man, still as much human as you and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and engaging with your very self, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has. At first, only for moments. Then for longer periods. And finally, he says, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God, which shares in his power, joy, knowledge and eternity. Do you want that? Maybe a little bit at first, and then a bit more, and then for longer periods until finally, permanently, you live in Christ in this whole new way of seeing and thinking. So how do you do it? Do you want to know how you do it? Paul's advice for how to do it really surprised me when I first read this. Like he starts with the cosmic Christ. He then talks about us being in Christ, like in a whole new form of reality. And then when it comes to practical advice, how you should do it, listen to what he says. Verse 16 of Colossians 3. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You sing it into existence. I'm not much of a singer, so when I first read that, it's like, you sing it into existence? What is he saying? He's writing to people who didn't have the New Testament. He's writing to people who didn't have churches or clams or anything like that. He's writing to people who would just gather together and try to remain in Christ. So how are you going to do it? Come together and sing up the world that you want to be in. Sing up the world in which Christ is king. Sing up the world of compassion and justice and mercy and peace. Admonish and correct and encourage and teach each other in song. Now, I think today he would also add, and in Bible teaching and in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and in prophecy. But just to the Colossians at this particular point, what he's saying is this. Get your head and your heart into the world in which Christ holds all things together. Do that by coming together every Sunday and singing about that world. That's why I much prefer singing songs about the world of Christ. 
about who Christ is, about what Christ is doing, about what Christ's kingdom is like. I'm not that into the songs about how much I love him and how I'll never let him go and all that. It feels like I can't be trusted. But I want you singing in my ear every Sunday, reminding me of what it means to be in Christ. I want to sing that into your world as well. And now, of course, we do have the New Testament. We do have the Bible. We do have Bible teachers and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Effectively, what he's saying is, how do you remain in Christ? How do you put him on? You need each other. You need to be equipped and encouraged and admonished and corrected and held accountable and supported and inspired by each other through song and word and blessing. You all with me? with a poem, a really short poem. This battery lasts for, but it's a really short poem. You may have heard of Teresa of Avia, but this um, quote is actually not from her. It's from St. Clair of Avia, and it's a beautiful poem that, in a sense, reiterates what Paul has been saying in Colossians chapter 3. She writes this. We become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. Imitation is not a literal mimicking of Jesus. Rather, it means becoming the image of the beloved, an image disclosed to us through transformation. Let me say a prayer. Father, I thank you for this congregation and I pray for them now as they bow before you. Such a beautiful, generous spirit I sense in this room. Such a genuine openness and desire to learn and to know and to grow. And Father, I pray that they might sing up the world as you created it, that they might put on Christ this year or continue to put on Christ this year, as they move into a new year. That from the youngest to the oldest, every word would be important. From the most educated to the least educated, every word, every song would be heard. That all would have voice. That all would be able to contribute to the growth of each other. That we might have genuine community of faith. Being elevated into the world as you created it to mirror the world of compassion and justice and mercy and reconciliation and peace and hope that you intended for us all. Amen.